Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and another episode of The Yoke with Doak. Uh, I was up at Sand Valley talking with Tom, and uh, this episode will focus a lot on his project up there, the Lido Project. It's a uh, private club. It'll be open to resort guests in some fashion, but uh, it will be up there. It's a recreation of the Lido course. So we talked about the project as it's mid-stage, and um, I hope you guys enjoy this. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So we're here, uh, we're at Sand Valley, and uh, where you guys are building Lido. Mm-hmm. Um, tell, you know, you're, mid, you're right in the middle of it. How, how's this project? You're obviously recreating the Lido course from, you know, New York, uh, one of the great courses, the golden age that was, you know, lost to housing and all sorts of stuff, uh, long, complicated story, but you're, uh, you're recreating it and you know, to as much spec as you can. How How is this process different from, you know, building your own new course? This is a completely different process than building my own new course and a lot more technology involved. And, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like restoring an old golf course, except we, we have to build that. We have to do that from the ground up here. And, uh, you know, I think that would have been really hard I don't think I could have done that, drawn a good map of it to get all the relative elevation, you know, how high was the fourth green and compared to the the 12th green and compared to the fairway at four and all those things. I don't know that you, you could have, I could have stared at those pictures for months and months and months and still it would have been too daunting to think, okay, I can draw a topo map of all that and get all these elevations right. So that's, you know, so I never tried to tackle it like that. And then as we've talked about on your podcast before, I think somebody else did. Peter Flory spent all this time working on a video game version of it. Um, but you know, using every black and white picture that existed and, and some LIDAR data from somewhere and, you know, just pulling together all the information that he could to make a computer game model. So when you make it on computer game software, you kind of have to, you you kind of having to make it in 3D so it looks right. But at least the version of the game that the the verse the game that he was using, I guess there's one or two kind of computer games where you actually do kind of do you make a 3D terrain model of the land that you're going to do and the greens that you're doing. But his wasn't really that way. So he, he did all this stuff graphically to get it to look right. And then, you know, my question was still like, okay, but how are we going to get a map out of that? You know, you've obviously got all this, you've, you've got a ton of detail in there that that, that that feature looks 12 feet high instead of 9 or 14. But 
how is that data coded into this program? And is there a way to pull that out? And even Peter didn't really know. And then, you know, cause, cause the world is a funny place, you know, while we're sitting there trying to figure out, is that even possible? Uh, one of the guys who works on the maintenance crew here, Brian Zager, who works on the maintenance crew at Sand Valley also like creates, uh, computer golf games in his spare time he's been doing it for years and he's like he raises his hand and goes oh yeah i could like make a bot that goes in and pulls out a million spot elevations for off the computer model and turns it into a map and we're all like, like really <laughs> and like a month later i get a map in the mail of the lido and you know it took me about two minutes of looking at it to think that's got to be pretty close. You know, I mean, that looks like, that looks like what a Redan hole should look like. And it's got the tilt correct. And it's, you know, the greens are the right size and the, the elevations seem like they make sense. And, you know, I was just amazed, but so we've basically used all this technology to get, give us that, you know, we didn't really think that was perfect. You know, Peter Flory was the first one to say, you know, some of this, I've got really good pictures from five different angles and some of it, I've got almost nothing other than one aerial photo that shows that hole from a certain angle. So, you know, so, so he's been really good about telling us, you know, I'm really confident about this, the, the green on this hole. I'm not as confident about the green on this hole. So, so anyway, we've used the model to kind of give us a base to, you know, instead of starting from flat, nothing, we're starting from the model. We've, you know, we're using. So, so what's happening, you take the model and then people are building off that model. Yes. In the ground. Yes. We're, so we're taking, we're taking all the topo information off the model. We're digging a giant lake where the lagoon was between the fourth and 12th holes. We're using that dirt to fill the mounds and green sites all up to the right elevation and just, just cutting and filling on site. But like two thirds of the fill comes from that huge lagoon to get to build everything else, which the original golf course, they, they dredged Dredge, the channel yeah. and kind of built those forms all the same way when they did it the first time themselves. Uh, so we get every, you know, so we get, you know, we get our, the first holes that we built were kind of 13, 14, 15, 16. And we get the, you know, and they're because they're close to the lagoon. So it was easy to haul the dirt. You know, you couldn't really finish the 12th hole along the lagoon until you had all the dirt out. You know, you keep, you keep having traffic across that hole until it's all dug out. So you couldn't work on that hole first. You had to leave that for a while. So, but we built the other holes close to it with the dirt as it came out of the lagoon. And so you get the 13th green, which is supposed to be like a knoll hole sitting pretty high up in the air. It's a little bigger green than I thought it would be. You know, if you just told me to build a null hole, I would have built a smaller green there, but you know, I've got an aerial photo that shows it was a pretty big green and pictures from enough different angles to say, okay, it was that high. So 
you know, but you know, when we got on top of it to really look at it, it's like certain th- you know, certain things start coming up that you don't think about when you're making a computer game version. Mm-hmm. Like does it drain anywhere? Yeah. <laughs> you know, all the T's, Peter just made all the T's dead flat cuz why not? But, you know, nearly any golf course you'd ever build the T will be built at a 1% grade instead so that it drains off, you know, when it pours rain, it drains off. Now we're in one of the only places I've ever worked where you don't really have to worry about that. The sand here is perks so fast and it's so deep. I mean, they they literally can't get a puddle to stay at Sand Valley on the other golf courses. So we think we're kind of exempt from that. And I, you know, I went to the superintendent as soon as I started thinking about it, like, so do you want us to build the tees flat or do you want us to build it with 1%? Because if it's 1%, I got to go back and edit the computer model for all the tees. Otherwise, the machine's just going to keep making the thing flat again. <laughs> and he's like, no, I think we could have flat tees here. So I'm like, okay, that's one problem <laughs> solved. But, you know, kind of the the greens, I mean, I, I have no idea, like on the computer game version, you know, how they decide, like, how much slope makes the green fast. But it seems like on the computer game, it must be dialed up to very high speeds because most of the greens are pretty flat by the standards of how they used to build old golf courses. You know, like some of them, there was less than 1% slope in, you know, parts of the green that were hole locations. And on an older golf course, typically, you you know, all those things would be 2%. Yeah. Um, so that's it seemed like in you know, is the real small minutia would be the hardest part to go from video game to into yes. the ground. Yes. Now it's, you know, it's funny. There's a, there's a lot of like little two, three foot high mounds and ridges and ripples and stuff that when, you know, when we just had it build out the computer model, it's like, wow, that looks pretty good. I mean, we didn't ever shape something that intricate, but it does look like, a Lynx fairway would look in the UK. So, you know, we don't have to do anything more to that. Really the only places that we're, that we're editing much are the green surfaces. Cause some of them are, some of them were flatter than I think they probably were, you know? So I go back to Peter and say, well, how sure, how sure are you about that? Or the, you know, the 15th green, the first time I walked on it, I was like, God, this looks huge. Are you sure this was really this big? And you know, and it, you know, and also it's, it seemed to sit up higher to just my eye of like looking at, you know, compared to like a green at Chicago golf club, this sat up like two feet higher. And I was like, are you sure it sat up that high? Cause you know, they would have been hitting a fairly long shot in there and trying to run it up. And it doesn't seem like, you know, it seems like the ramp going up to the green is too steep and you're not going to be able to hit a long shot and, and bounce it up there. And he was like, no, you know, no, I can't say, I can't say I'm a hundred percent sure of that. And then, you know, Brian Zager will step, step back in and, you know, so the technology for this thing is good enough now, you know, if we, if we, I, I never try to build a golf course to plans. So I never worry about, you know, I'm only trying to make the shaping look right, but for this, you know, we can stand there with the with the map and all the GPS data from the model on the iPhone and a blue dot showing you right where you're standing. So, you know, where's the edge of the green side bunker? Well, it's two feet over to the right. 
<laughs> you know, we can really put it on the ground that precise. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, you got to make it work in three. You know, you got to that's 2D. You got to make it work in 3D also. But, you know, so we have Brian Zager out there flagging all the time. Like, you know, we, after 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 we got the model roughed in, Brian came back and looked at the 15th green. And it's like, no, it's really like 10 feet too big in the back. I don't know where, you know, I don't know where the model got screwed up. But, you know, here's, you know here's the overlay right here. This should be the back edge of the green, right? Where we're standing and we still got that much more, you know, and we, we had a half built, we already had the irrigation loop in around that green cause we were pretty sure it was right. And Brian's like, no, it's too big. Okay. Yank the irrigation loop out of there, chop off 10 feet out of the back of the green. We'll do it again. Thankfully we haven't had too many of those that we, we just, you know, figured out after we spent a lot of time on it. Now nah, it's not quite in the right place or no, it's a little too big or too small or whatever. Um, you know, and we're trying to, you know, we're doing a better job of anticipating that more and triple checking our work as we do it instead of waiting till the end and then finding out we, we screwed up the size of a green a little bit. Do you think, uh, with this technology that like, it's a, it, it could be something that you use more and more in the future for say, even like restorations or you know, rebuilding other, I, I, there, I don't think any of them, you know, really compare to Lido, but could you potentially rebuild other courses in America that maybe are in other parts of the world? Yes. And there's both good things and bad things to say about that. So, so like for restoration, just like I was saying, we can stand there and look at our blue dot and tell, tell that the bunker should be a little more to the right. Mm -hmm. You could do that with, the 1925 aerial of any one of these golf courses that you're working on doing a restoration of and go, this bunker isn't big enough yet. And, you know, we've always tried to do that in the field and, you know, but we're staring at an aerial, you know, we're staring at a photo on our phone. We don't have it blown up big enough that we can say, okay, this thing is exactly from right there to right there. Now you can do that. But the problem, the, the problem is, no architect can draw exactly what they want to build. You know, making a bunch of lines on a piece of paper, it's like you wouldn't ask Michelangelo to do a sculpture by making a map of the sculpture mm -hmm. that he was going to do and then having somebody else make the sculpture based on his map. So, you know, golf architecture is a 3D field. It's like sculpture and trying to reduce it down to two and back to a plan that, you know, the plan shows contour lines, but it doesn't show, you know, it only, you know, when you're drawing contour lines, trying to actually visualize the shape is really hard. Like the, one of the first courses I built, um, the let, when I was doing the legends at Myrtle beach, Larry Young had, had this old shaper guy that built a bunch of golf courses. So, I, you know, I drew a grading plan just like this one for Lido of basically what I wanted to do. And they started moving dirt around to build it. And, you know, and like one of the days I saw the shaper, you know, he had my plan. He had a little like three inch long ruler that he was using on the plan to figure out like, how steep was the mound next to the green on the 15th hall? Like, you know, what was the slope going down there? And I was like, 
said, I didn't think about that at all when I drew that map. You know, he's trying to get it exactly like my little drawing, but I didn't, you know, I didn't measure that out for how steep I wanted that to be. I just thought I need a four foot high mound to the to the right of the green. But did I draw it the right size? And did I draw the contour line spaced out just right to get the shape I wanted? No. Yeah. You know, I was going to figure that out once we once they put the dirt in place. So that's the hard part. It's like, can you can you draw something like that? But what you can do, and what I think I'm going to do in the future. So so right now to get the base version of the computer model out there on the ground, you know, the 3D topo model is in a computer and there's a GPS unit in the bulldozer that will tell that tells the bulldozer where it is on the plan and what the elevation's supposed to be. So like you need to cut another foot here to get it to the plan. So the you know, so but like I say, we're editing some of the greens because the plan isn't perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, so the fifteenth green is smaller. But you know, after we get done with shaping things, it's very windy out here some days and the, you know, it's just all raw sand. So it blows around a lot. You know, the construction guys are like, Oh, no problem. You know, we can put it back exactly like before we just run over it again with the GPS dozer and put it all right back. And it's like, yeah, but you're putting back the the computer model and we just edited the computer. You know, we just edited all that. So so we we sorted out pretty quickly, and you know I said to Brian Sager, so once I sh- once I reshape this green to get what I want, can you just map that out and put that in the bulldozer so it can rebuild that next time in case it gets blown around? And he said, yeah. So you know we've tried that out on the first three or four greens here now, and it does. You know it puts bet. You know you don't need Brian Schneider to do to do all the intricate shaping the second time. Mm-hmm. The other guy using the GPS dozer can get it really close because he's got all the data points in there. I imagine the first time you did it, it was a very, very close examination to make sure it was all right. Yes. Yeah. But now that, so now we're comfortable with that. And I'm thinking that could be a game changer for me for like this, this winter, I'm going to go to New Zealand and work on the new course down the beach from Terra Edi. And you know, every time I go to build core is like quarantined for two weeks, three separate times so far to build his golf course. I'd like to only have to do that once. So I'm thinking I can go in January, do my two weeks of quarantine. The golf course is pretty much all cleared of trees already so that, you know, we could work on any one of the greens right now. So you could do the greens first. Yeah. I'm thinking I can shape everything I want to shape in like two months and just GPS it all into a perfect map of what I want to build because I built it. You know, it's like doing the sculpture, making the map of the sculpture, and then using the map to make more copies of the sculpture. Uh You know, we can, you know, so I can make one long trip, do all the stuff that I want to see, and then leave Brian Slonick to put that back together, you know, I mean, the only reason we can't build the whole golf course that fast is because we have to irrigate and finish it. And you've only got so many guys, the irrigation crew only works so fast. So usually, you know, when we were building Terraiti, we couldn't get more than about four holes ahead or all the cool stuff would blow away by the time they got the irrigation to it. In fact, the last green we built at Terraiti was the 13th, a little short par four up in the back. And 
Brian Schneider and I were shaping the green. Brian Slonick was working on finishing the 12th and 14th holes and getting grass on them. And, you know, we finished the 13th green, you know, high-fived, headed to the airport to fly back to the States. We're sitting in the Auckland airport that night, and Slonick calls us like, I wish I'd have had a better look at that green because it's pretty much gone. We had a 40-mile-an-hour windstorm right after you left. And, you know, no record of it. So he just had to, you know, he kind of remembered what we'd done and he, you know, he winged back a version, but it's not exactly the same as what we'd shaped that we, that we both gave the thumbs up to. That shouldn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. We do have the tech, you know, now I know how to use the technology to save that. You know, that's what I want. You know, we can put that back. It'll make you, your way more efficient that way then too. Yeah. I won't have to, so, you know, so I'm, I'm going through the the immigration process right now to get, you still have to have a special, you know, you have to have a special visitor visa to go to New Zealand right now. Even if you wanted to do the two week quarantine, your typical tourist can't get, can't get permission to co- go yet. Um, so I, you know, I'm, so I'm doing this, I've got an immigration lawyer working on getting me the document that I need. They looked up my records for New Zealand immigration and, and to build two courses and plan my third one and play a little golf on them a couple of times. I've been to New Zealand 30 times uh-huh. in the last 20 years, 30 trips, 162 days on the ground in New Zealand. I was like, damn, that's a lot. A lot of people would be pretty envious of getting to spend half a year, uh, um, not a, quite a half a year in, in uh, New Zealand. Oh, I'd love to also, but I've been doing it like seven days at a time <laughs> <laughs> with a 30-hour flight each way. <laughs> it it kind of adds up and it takes a toll on your body. And you know, and I've already made like five or six trips for this project. And we haven't built anything yet. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's just the planning process and and how long it takes to get through all the roadblocks to building a golf course now. But, you know, but I do think this technology gives you a chance to like be way more efficient when you get to the construction part and make sure you don't have hiccups. Now the, the downside of it is it's too easy to copy yourself and it's too easy to copy something else Mm -hmm. and, and just cut flat out, copy it down to the last millimeter instead of like, you know, I mean, every course I've ever built, just like I was talking about in the Pacific Dunes book, you know, this green is inspired by something I've seen somewhere else. Yeah. But I'm not literally take. you know, when I, when like I a think, carbon copy. Yeah. When I think, you know, the 16th hole at Pacific Dunes kind of reminded me a little bit of 10 at Riviera, but I didn't intend to build exactly the green of 10 at Riviera there. I'm just taking that idea and working with the, the set site that I've got and how wide it is and making something that plays similar to that, that you want to drive left to play into a narrow little target. Um, but unfortunately with this technology doesn't just take the idea. It gives you the exact 3d plagiarism data to do whatever you want. If you have a map of a famous golf course, which the technology is makes it much easier to get that now too. You know, it used to be, you know, I do have deep in the stashes of the office of Renaissance golf. I have topo maps for Augusta and Wingfoot and 
Oakmont and Oakland Hills that Arnold Palmer's company had when they were doing, when they were going to, they didn't actually build it, but they were going to build Golden Ocala. Yeah. So they got the maps for those courses so they could reproduce those halls. This is a big boom for, uh, for replica courses. Well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, my, my fear is that, you know, it's going to take some of the creativity out that it'll just, it's going to be too easy to just build almost an exact replica of whatever you want. So you don't, you're, so you're not trying to build a better version anymore. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to build the same thing over again. And, you know, even the, I mean, the story of the Lido, the way we're doing it, you know, it reminds me just a little too much of Hollywood where, you know, I, I have had the thought a couple of times that if Michael Kaiser had wanted me to do a great course on that site and not a copy of the Lido, it would have been, that would have been a harder sell. You know, he says we're doing the Lido and people are signing up with a $50,000 check before we've done anything. Yeah. And if it's, if, if I'm building a new course, generally you're going to want to have an idea of what that's going to be like. And I can't really tell you exactly what, you know, the creativity hasn't happened yet. But so well, yeah, the Lido's like the ultimate romantic r romantic story of of golf, like where it it went away and bringing it back as like the the happy ending, right? But in the movie business, it would be a sequel, and yeah. you know that's that's just come to totally dominate the movie business now. Nobody ever writes any new movies anymore. True. They just do, you know, some number five comic book. Well, it's, it's super. <laughs> it's super interesting when you think about it because like. It's like all the work that goes into creating the the new the characters of a of a story or the like the unique characters of a golf hole. Like I, I would say, the golf holes or characters yeah. are what win Academy Awards. You know, mm -hmm. um, and you know, for golf courses, that's like the same thing. Like the great new golf courses are all new individual holes. Like replica courses don't win, you know, awards for best new course, right? Or I hope they didn't. I don't know if Golden Ocala up to now. Did. Now yeah. you know we're about to find out whether we whether we've broken through that barrier, and and it you know it pays to just build the replica instead of trying to do the cool new thing. And it because would, from a standpoint, at least it, this one doesn't exist. It's gone. True. You know? And like, that's but it would you know where where it would be like I feel it would be cheap is like if I came to Wisconsin and played Royal Dornick or you know. And that's, you know, the only reason I signed up to do it is because the Lido is gone. You know, if, if, if they just said to me, yeah, we want to build an exact re replica of Augusta, uh, you know, <laughs> never mind, you know, all the flack you would get for that. It'd be like, no, I don't want to do that. And I know I don't want to do like the 1930 version of Augusta either. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, just go to Augusta if you want that even though it's pretty hard to get in. <laughs> now for a quick word from our sponsor, Rapsodo. Hey, you know, the best way to get better at golf, I think, really is to understand how to hit shots the right yardage. You know, distance control is always the thing that stands out to me as the best asset of uh, really great players, whether you're at the club level. Um, you know, the best junior players hit their irons the right distance. So with that in mind... Repsodo is our sponsor. They are a portable, affordable digital launch monitor. 
this thing's great. It, it fits. It's about the same size as a rangefinder. You can just throw in your bag, have it for range sessions, and you can get consistent, immediate feedback that lets you know how far you're hitting the ball. Um, this thing works great. It automatically tracks your stats, stores video uh, with Shot Tracer. You know, it, it's just a great way to get more informed about how far your shots are going. So Rapsodo, it's uh, it's a great tool. If you use the promo code FRIEDEGG, you get a free premium subscription for a year. That's a $100 value. Uh, it's awesome. You just have to use the promo code FRIEDEGG, and that's Rapsodo, R-A-P-S-O-D-O. Thanks to Rapsodo, and now back to the Yoke with Doak. Has there been anything when it's gotten built into the ground that's like really wowed you, like that you didn't expect from looking? I know you looking at a map, you can usually tell. Is there anything that stood out from seeing stuff? You know, it's you know you're about halfway done with the the construction aspect of it. Well, as I said, you know, as I said before, some of the coolest parts are just the undulations and the fairways look really cool. And and Peter Florian and I had talked a lot about that. That it was clear from like the plasticine model that they did for the Lido before they built it, that somebody thought a lot about what kinds of cool little wrinkly contours do we want to get in this course. And, you know, he did go, going back to what we said about Royal St. George's, you know, McDonald built the full scale of undulations from, from, you know, two foot up and down in 17 fairway to, a 25 foot dune hovering over the fairway on the left side. That's the out, the backside of the Alps Hill coming down into that fairway. You know, it's, it's a pretty wild range of contour for starting out with a dead flat site. Um, and other than that, I think, you know, like Mr. Kaiser, I missed Mr. Kaiser by a couple of days here, this trip. He, he was here last week and, you know, we only have a couple of holes like finished and grassed and the rest of it's just all open sand, even though the shapes are close when you're when you're looking from far away, you you can't you can't really tell what's going on until you're right on the hole. But his impression was the same as most people that have walked out here. Wow, I mean the scale of it is really much bigger than we thought. And it's just it's just so big and open and you like see almost all the way across it from one side to the other is kinda you know, it's, it feels different than the courses over here. Totally. Um, very different. Way and, different. And, and, you know, you know, you know, is that a good thing? It's good because it's different. I mean, you know, generally if I'm, if, if, if I was building a course from scratch and you said, would you rather have the wide open thing that's all shaped up or, or trees and shrubs and, and big hills and stuff, I'd usually rather go for the, the land that's over here you know, we know we're doing some, you know, this, this is a special case. It's not, it's not the kind of golf course I'm going to build a lot more of. I'm really interested to see what people think of it, but it's, it is, I mean, it's, it's not just a knockoff McDonald replica course. There's, you know, first of all, there's three or four holes that there is no version of on his other golf courses. And second, you know, all the, all the planning work that they thought of, you know, building contour into the fairways on this course, you know, Chicago golf club doesn't have contour in the fairways like this. You know, I was going to even ask national you. doesn't really have contour in the fairways like this. What do you, uh, you know, everybody's always going to compare it to other McDonald's courses. Like right. it, how would you compare contrast it with, with different of the famous Rainer McDonald's? 
well, I, I think the one that it'll get compared to the most is Chicago Golf Club because, you know, Chicago Golf Club is is a big piece of ground that that the total elevation change from bottom to top is probably pretty similar, 20 or 30 feet. Everybody describes Chicago Golf as being flat. Yeah. It's not flat. You know, it's gently up and down 15, 20 feet at a time. Uh, but you know, and this is maybe a little flatter than that with, but with bigger features in certain places. So the range is similar, you know, you don't quite see all the way across it from one hole, but you certainly see holes halfway across the property as your plan. So both because of proximity and because of the size and lack of trees in the middle of the property, I think that's the one that will be compared to the most. The one thing that I think will make it most different from Sand Valley is, you know, mostly now we try to make the course hard for the good player, but easier for the weaker players. The Lido was not that, you know, there's, there's a ton of like cross hazards and, and there's a lot of fairway bunkers, 180 yards from the tee and, 220 yards from the tee and just all over the golf course there's a lot of bunkers and so i think for the like higher handicapper it's going to be very hard because there's a lot of carries and you know there's you can you can bounce the ball into the greens on most of the holes but there's been some big obstacle in the fairway before you get there that that's gonna take a toll on the average guy and on some good players too. I mean, there's some, there's some really nasty small bunkers and deep bunkers and cross hazards that the, that the scratch player is going to have to really think about. Can I get past that or not? Uh, any holes like in particular that you've seen now into the, in, in the ground where you're like, huh, that's pretty cool. Uh, the 15th hole, the one that was actually Simpson's entry for the Lido contest. I mean, it's a huge hole. It's, it takes up so much. The fifteenth and the fourth holes both take up so much ground. They're like the biggest holes that I've ever built. The they're fourth, just, the channel hole, right? Yes. The, 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 you know, they're like they're like hundred and fifty yards wide between between <laughs> the two alternate fairways, and they're they, you know they're both pretty long holes, and it's just boy, it's going to take like two weeks to plant the fairway on that hole by the time we're done. Um, you know, they're at a scale that's kind of bigger than any, I think, than any hole I've ever built that I can think of. So that that stood out right away. But also, like, you know, like 15 fairway has some ridges in it that are that br- divide the fairway into sections. And it's like, oh, you don't see, I would have never thought to build stuff like that into a hole. But, yeah, it's going to be cool. And, you know, I think, you know, it's going to be fescue fairways. I think it'll be play pretty dry and pretty firm and the ball is really going to roll out a lot and you've got a lot of features out there big enough to like steer a ball you know like have the ball change direction when it's on the ground and steer toward a bunker or steer away into a hollow on the other side or something more than most courses that I've worked on I mean as a midwesterner who's you know grown up playing all around here Whenever I come to Sand Valley, like the first few holes, I'm always jarred by how firm and fast everything plays, like how, yeah. uh, especially around the greens. And it's got it's got to be something when you're designing. Like, do you te- typically tone down stuff when you know it's going to be fescue? Well, I you know I've built enough courses that are fescue that 
I think it's the other way around. I mean, I, I sort of always come into a course with the mindset that that's what it's going to be like. Yeah. And I have to, you know, on the, on the rare occasions that weren't, that we're not building for those conditions. I have to like remind myself, okay, you know, I need to make this a little harder because it's not going to be a super fast surface mm -hmm. and, and these slopes aren't going to have as much effect as they normally do. That makes sense. It's a, that, that'll be cool with the, the severity, like just that ball just fly around there. Right. It's yeah, it's, a, it's a really cool to see it starting to take shape and then like the stuff the crazy stuff's like where you see where you haven't gotten to yet how it just like nothing you know it, it's a it's really interesting halfway halfway through kind of uh, yeah the last like stuff. the the holes that we're building last are the ones that were on the south end of the site so like seven eight nine and 18 and the, the 18th hall you know it's funny i mean most people when they talk about the lido talk about the the 18th hole because that was the hole that McKenzie won a competition to design and it was the super wild hole and we haven't we haven't got to that one yet yeah. you know I'm looking at the fourth hole and the 15th hole thinking they're they're pretty wild I've never seen anything like that we haven't even got to the wildest one yet so uh what what else do you are you working on this summer this fall you talked about Terry Eady is uh the you know, not Terry Eady but the other courses at yeah. Terry Eady are coming up you've got Dornick Hills restoration Right that's the the other thing that I'm doing this summer is is doing a restoration of um Perry Maxwell's first golf course which he built on his own farm in Ardmore Oklahoma Dornick Hills which years ago so that that part of Oklahoma is like you know, the club's kind of, you know, it's not a wealthy club. You know, it's an oil and gas part of the country and the oil and gas business isn't booming. So I was totally, you know, years ago I'd said maybe on your podcast, maybe in, I think it was an interview with Rand Morissette actually, like said, you know, if you could restore any course, what would you do? And, I, you know, at, at some point, one of those, one of those questions I said, you know, I'd restore that golf course for free. They really, they blew up all the greens 40 years ago and really changed it around and, and took away from it. And, you know, it should be in a, you know, Maxwell's buried there on a, in a little cemetery overlooking the golf course. It has one of the great golf holes in America on it. And it's like, you know, the whole golf course should, should be that good. And it's really not, it hasn't been for years decades so i was very surprised last year kind of right at the start of the pandemic when nothing was going on i got a call out of the blue from somebody at dorna kills like were you serious about you know you would help restore the golf course for free and i was like yeah you know i i mean for sure i'd you know because they're they they need to put in a new irrigation system and they were thinking as long as they were doing that you know if they were ever going to do anything to restore it now would be the time but they didn't really have the money to restore it all. They didn't know how much it would cost to restore it. They, that's the first question was like, how much would it cost? And I said, I don't, you know, I got to come look for a couple of days. I don't know what the scope of work would be, you know, but they were hoping that we could restore it without restoring the greens. And I was like, I mean, it doesn't count, <laughs> you know, a Maxwell course without Maxwell greens is not a restoration. You know, that's the one thing we have to do. Everything else is like, I don't know if we have to go that far, but we have to rebuild the greens. Um, and of course, just like the Lido, 
You know, they didn't they didn't make really accurate maps of the greens when they blew them up and changed them all 30 years ago. So we have to go back and look at look at all the old black and white pictures we can find. And there's not as many of that. You know, they didn't hold any major championships on it or anything. It wasn't in New York. Yeah. So it's it's much harder to find good pictures and good information. Some of the pictures of it that do exist were out of Perry Maxwell's personal collection of photos that were handed down to his kids and grandkids and people have made copies of over the years. Um, you know, so when I went to the club the first time, they put me in a car, they put me in the golf cart next to an older member that was driving me around and showing me around. And, you know, after we started talking for a couple of holes, his grandfather was Perry Maxwell's brother-in-law and Maxwell's two brothers-in-law were his shapers and project manager when he got busy in the, like when, when, when Maxwell built Crystal Downs for McKenzie in 1929 and 30, he and his brother-in-law moved up there for two summers and did all the work. Um, so this guy, you know, this guy, Bruzzy Westheimer, the, the old member that I met, you know, he grew up playing Dornick Hills and, you know, his, his parents and grandparents had worked on building the golf course in the first place. And he, you know, he's got a pretty good memory, but you know, even for me, remembering green contours 40 years later and how they yeah. were different is a pretty hard thing to do. So, so I was like, well, it's great that he knows the golf course. And, and really, so Maxwell's descendants foundation are the ones that are putting up most of the money to rebuild the golf course. And they're just thrilled that, you know, we're trying to do it right. Mm -hmm. um, but I really felt like I needed like one more guy who really remembered the golf course well. You know, they, they, they rounded up all the ex-superintendents and guys that used to work on the crew and had them come out with me for a day. And that was cool. And, you know, I, I heard some things about how the golf course used to be that I didn't expect, you know, but they don't remember it as players so much. They remember yeah. features and they could tell you like how high that feature was or how hard it was to mow and that kind of stuff. But they don't really remember what the green played like, which is really the, you know, that's the most important thing we're trying to get back. And so... So everybody's combing their brains like who would who would know? And and then Bruzzy Westheimer goes, Well, you know Mike Holder, right? From Oklahoma State. And Bruzzy's like his parents moved here when he was fifteen. He played high school golf in in Ardmore. He played Dorna Kills every day for like three or four years. And then he went off to college and his parents moved away. He hadn't come back much. So so we called him and asked if he would consult on it a little bit for us. And he said, absolutely, yes. So he's already been down a couple of times and he's going to meet me next week when I'm there to, you know, really go over everything he remembers about the golf course. And he's got a really good memory. Yeah. So I think if you between, grew up, I feel like anywhere you grew up playing golf, yeah. if you're a, if you're a high school, high level, like he's a great player, like you're going to remember like the back of your mind, those, those childhood rounds playing there. Yep. I mean, just like, you know, at Royal Melbourne, the guy who's been the most help in restoring some things on the East course is the, is a guy named John Green, who wrote a, has written a book about the golf course now, but John was like club champion there 30 years ago. He was not a long hitter. You know, he was like a club champion who had to be like pinpoint accurate and know where to miss every green. 
you know, in order to get up and down. And that's like the, the most valuable bit of information you could have because that's basically telling you which way the green tilted, yeah, where, where, where it was where it was really hard to get up and down from and where it was easy. If you tell me that, you know, even if I don't get the contours exactly right, it still plays the way it played. That's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Like it's, it's about how it plays, not necessarily like when you don't have all the information, you know, worrying about the, every little contour is one, but getting how it played right is the right. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, you, cause then you've everything got, makes sense. Then and, all the hazards make sense. And then, you know, you're looking at a black and white photo, but you don't have context there. If you give me the black and white photo that shows me some where some features are, and then you give me the context of, yeah, what was really hard is if you got yourself over here, now I can put two and two together and make the thing fit. Yeah. And then it is something somebody might say, oh, it's always impossible to read this putt here. And it might be, oh, it's not consistent with the rest of the green. Yep. That's it. I never thought about it that way. Um, but it's very rare that you have guys that remember the golf course that well after it was changed 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. It's like there's just not many people. Like like for, be for interesting, we were working on Bel Air. Um, I said to the guy who was like the chairman of the project, you know, there's a, f there's a few greens out here that really haven't been changed very much. And I got to rebuild it, but I don't want to change it. So there's some subtle stuff I don't want to lose. And I don't know exactly what it is. I was like, which members of Bel Air would be the ones that know the greens the best? And he thought about it for about five minutes. And he's like, uh, you know, the, the guys, the guy, the two players that have won the club championship a lot and were really good putters. So he figured they knew the greens were best were Jack Wagner, the act, the actor, and Jerry West. <laughs> oh, How about that? So those were your guides. <laughs> those were the guys. <laughs> that's pretty cool. The logo. Um, uh, that should be a fun project to watch. Uh, and, and it's all happening. It. It's all happening pretty fast. I mean, you know, they got the golf course closed this summer, and we're out there just flying away as fast as we can. You know, they're a month into it. I haven't seen it yet, but it, basically I'm trying to like, you know, they're going to have most, a rough version of most of the greens there for me to look at Saturday when I get there. And I've got about two weeks to try to sign off on all of them <laughs> and be done. That's uh, that's real quick. That's yeah. real quick. And but, open back up by spring. Oh no, this fall. fall. You know, it, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're, so you're, you're planting bent grass in, well, November maybe. Mm -hmm. November, December, they'll be back to playing golf. That'll be really cool. Um, all right, we'll we'll catch you sometime soon. Everybody can go buy your book, dokegolf.com, the uh, making of Pacific Dunes. Right, that's the title. Yep, and I'll I'll have to update the website with the new stuff I'm working on because all that stuff is out of date now. <laughs> and, that's the joys and, of a and website. Some of it's and <laughs> and some of it's changed completely. Like one or two of the projects that I thought for sure we'd be working on now. Looks like they may never happen, and then there's a whole raft of new stuff that I can't quite talk about yet. Yeah, we'll catch you soon. Um, you're going to be in Wisconsin some more, so that's easy for us. Yep. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. 
This episode was edited by Meg Atkins. A quick reminder, we've got a we've got a jammed event schedule this fall. We just finished up our summer slate. We're kicking back off in September. We've got great events and great courses. Go check them out at thefriedag.com. Um, go to the pro shop and you can see the events there or there's a whole events tab. So check them out. We've got a great lineup. Really excited. Uh, had a great summer of events and looking forward to an awesome fall. Uh, a couple include Prairie Dunes, Lancaster, and uh, Boy Bear Yacht Club. So go check them out um, and hopefully we'll see you at an event.